The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. You'll open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Our sermon passage will come from verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 2. Verses 1 to 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we, we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open Your Word now, We ask that you would speak to us. We pray that our attention would be held, not by clever words, smooth phrases, but by your word revealed to us. So Father, we need your help by your Spirit's power to open our eyes, open our hearts, and open our ears, that we might see what your word says, we might hear what it says to us, we might apply it to our lives that we may be changed in every way. It is only by your Spirit that that can happen, that genuine transformation of the human heart can take place. So we pray that you would grant it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, John Bunyan wrote a famous allegory called Pilgrim's Progress. And It is a must-read for every Christian. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you have not read Pilgrim's Progress, you must. Now, I understand it was written in the 1600s, and so the language might not be exactly what you're expecting. But there are hundreds of thousands of copies of this that have been written and modified to make it more accommodating for modern audiences. There's two that I would recommend for you. Um, Parents, if you want to read this aloud to your kids, if your kids are probably north of about 10 years old and up, all the way into adulthood, if you're reading it yourself, uh, is a a version by Crossway Publishing. It looks like this. The cover is, uh, you got the slide up there, yep. Cover looks like that on the left. Crossway has put that out. It's got illustrations in it. So if you're one like me, I need books with pictures. Uh, you got one, okay? It's written in, in more plain language, up-to-date language, so it's really easy to read. Anybody 10 and up could, can read that, I think, pretty well. The second is taken from Pilgrim's Progress and turned into a kid's book, and it's published by Lithos Kids, and it's called Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. And really, you can read that to any kid, uh, 
before they can even talk, you could read that. And by the time they're about three, they'll start asking really deep questions about this. Uh, probably deeper than you're comfortable with. But I think there's three volumes that they've put out that kind of goes through the Pilgrim's Progress story. And they're all really good, tons of great illustrations and things like that for kids. It's a kid's story. It's, it's, it's really well done. I would recommend those to you. But in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, there are two main characters at one part in the story named Christian and Faithful. And you got to remember, this is an allegory, so each person represents exactly what it sounds like they represent. And so there's these two main characters, Christian and Faithful, and they find themselves in a town called Vanity. And in the town called Vanity, they have to attend this fair that operates throughout the town, and it's called Vanity Fair. And it runs all year long. And as John Bunyan lays out, he tells us that the fair was set up on purpose to be right there on the path that Christian and faithful have to take to get to the celestial city, or heaven, as it were. And Vanity Fair is set up along that pathway by Beelzebub, and several of his minions. And its purpose was to serve to distract Christians who would travel the path, the king's path, to the celestial city. And the fairs that they sold there, or the things that they sold there, were things like houses, lands, jobs, various honors of different kinds, titles, countries, kingdoms. But it also sold other things like lusts, pleasures, delights of all sorts. It's described to us that they sold wives and husbands and children and silver and gold and pearls and precious stones and entertainment of all kinds, plays and games. And all of these fair activities in Vanity Fair were run by essentially carnies who were there to kind of give and cheat various people, fool them, get them to spend more money, get them to spend more time, essentially ensnare them in the game and prevent them from leaving. So you can see as the allegory shapes up, Christian and faithful are having to walk through the town called Vanity, that they are going to be ensnared by Vanity Fair. Essentially this... Vanity Fair is entertainment quicksand, and it's designed to divert the Christian so that they never make it to the celestial city. One reason why Pilgrim's Progress has sold so many copies is that it remains relevant for every Christian in every generation. And it seems like as years go by, it only gets more relevant, not less. There might not be a better description of the world that we Christians find ourselves in today than Vanity Fair. In today's world, Vanity Fair is everywhere we look. And when we're done looking at all the things that Vanity Fair has to offer, we can lock Vanity Fair and put it in our pocket and carry it around with us. And it promises to buzz our leg 
or give us a little chime every time our day needs to be interrupted. Tony Renke, who is the author of 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, and another book called Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ in the Media Age, said it this way, Our world offers us a feast of new multimedia. New video games every month, new Hollywood movie releases every week, new YouTube videos every minute, new social media updates every second, and a fresh set of Instagram images with every pull-down-to-refresh gesture. Popular entertainment and viral video on social media is now made everywhere. And it reaches us anywhere. And it never stops. Like no century before us, we are submerged into media and into what has been famously called the age of the spectacle. And that's especially true now that we carry a digital theater in our pocket, our smartphone. Believe it or not, this sermon is not a diatribe against social media or smartphones or TV or movies or really even entertainment. You understand that Vanity Fair is set up along the path and you must walk through it. You have to endure. You have to push through. So I say all of this to draw our attention to the words of the author in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. He writes verse 1 to a church culture that's challenged on every single side by the temptations that exist in Vanity Fair. And he says this in verse 1, look with me. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In this verse that we're reading this morning is there's a word of warning. There's encouragement in it too, but it's a word of warning to us Christians and to the broader church culture in the South that is familiar with Jesus, that knows who Jesus is, and probably even has kind words to say about Jesus, and many even claim to want to be Christians and walk along the path to the celestial city, but have found themselves ensnared in Vanity Fair. The question the author is asking us is, what is God actually calling you to? In other words, Christian, what in this world has your attention? What is it you're listening to? When you look at verse 1, you see this word right there at the very beginning, therefore. And it tells you something really important. It tells you that you have to understand what came before this in order to understand what the author is wanting you to know now, in order for that to make sense. So the way we say it in Bible study is, when you see a therefore, you have to ask You've been taught so well. I'm so pleased. <laughs> so, even though I know that every sermon so far in Hebrews chapter 1, except for the first one, has begun with a review of chapter 1, I get that. Repetition will help us as we go further. We want to remember what is being said before so that we can understand what's coming now. 
So at the risk of being repetitive, let's remember what we've seen up to this point in chapter 1. He's been explaining to us that God has spoken under the new covenant in these last days by the Son. So He's set out to give us the reasons why God, speaking to us through the Son, is better than the ways that He has done it in the past, namely by the prophets. And He gives several reasons I count seven. There may be some more in there. But he says that the Son is superior to the prophets because one, the Son is the heir of all things. Two, the world was created through Him. Three, He is the radiance of the glory of God. Four, He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Five, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Six, He made purification for our sins. And seven, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, after He lays out those seven reasons why that that is superior to the way He has revealed Himself in the past, He then begins to explain why Christ is superior not only to the prophets that came before, but also to the angels who you are familiar with. Because unlike the angels, this Son, whom we know as Jesus Christ, is King, He is eternal God, and He is Judge. But there's a really important point for the rest of the chapter of chapter 2 that we'll be looking at in the the next few weeks. It's right there in verse 13. So at the end of chapter 1, Verse 13, he's comparing the Son to angels, and he says this, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's what we spent the last two weeks on. Unlike the angels who are sent out as ministering spirits to those who are to inherit salvation, that is, you and me who would seek to follow Christ, the Son, he says, is sitting at the right hand of God, and all His enemies are being brought into subjection under Him. That's what he means when he says that they're being made a footstool for His feet. All of His enemies are being brought into subjection under Him, and being made to serve Him as King. So what he's saying is that all earthly power and all earthly authority, great and small, is essentially subject to the Son. And there will come a day when every single one of them, you, me, and all of them as well, will stand before His judgment seat and give an account for all their works. And everyone, great and small, will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God. Everyone will be made to serve Christ. That's his point there at the end. So when you take into account all that's being said in chapter 1, our verse this morning comes across, as I said, as a warning to you. There's encouragement but it's a word of warning. There's one main point. I'm going to get to it at the end. So look with me again at verse 1. 
He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. I want to look at the end of this verse first and then come back to the beginning. I want you to see the author's concern. What is he concerned about for us? He says that we would drift away from what we have heard. This is the problem that is of great concern for him for the reason why he's writing to his audience. And it should be of utmost concern to you and me that we would drift away from what we have heard. Now the question is, what is it that we've heard? What are we concerned about drifting away from? We've heard this message that God has spoken in these last days through His Son about the supremacy of the Son of God. That's the message. That's the revelation that we have heard from God is the supremacy of the Son. We've heard about His atoning sacrifice for us. He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. We've heard about His resurrection from the dead. We've heard about His ascending to the right hand of the Father. We've heard about His eternal power. We have heard the message of salvation that has been preached about Jesus Christ. We have heard the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We've heard the truth about God. That's what He's concerned we drift away from. In the book of Hebrews, there are a lot of these nautical metaphors, these sea metaphors. As you can see on the screen behind me, there's a reason we chose the graphic that we chose, Anchor of the Soul, because of how often he comes back to these metaphors time and again. And here he uses one at the end of this verse, which is captured in the words, drift away. That, that term is used for boats that haven't dropped their anchor. What do they do? They drift now, all of that seems pretty straightforward, but I want you to think about what he's implying here about you and me by the use of that metaphor. Drifting away from Christ is the default position of the human heart. Drifting away from Christ is the default position of the human heart. And we can see that here in the text because he's warning you that something must be done by you or else this will happen. The inevitable outcome of you doing nothing, in other words, is that you will drift because that's the default position of the human heart. That's what the word lest means. In order that it won't happen, you have to, in order that drifting won't happen, in other words, you have to do something. So unless you're active in doing something in your faith, then you're going to drift off course as your heart is prone to do by default. Now, I'm not a ship captain. I actually hate the water. Fun fact. Terrified of it. Don't ask me to go out on a boat. I don't want to be out there. All right? That's where people die. Leviathan lives out there. I don't want anything to do with him. Okay? All kinds of creatures underneath the sea. God buried it under millions of gallons of water so you would never find it. It's just, don't, just don't go out there. That's the best thing that I could say. So anyway, I don't want to go out on the water, and I'm not an expert on the water. But do you think there's ever been, in the history of shipping, 
a captain who comes up to the dock and says to all of his assistants, I don't think we should drop an anchor because the seas seem pretty calm right now. Let's just get off the boat and just let it float here and come back later. Not a good captain, for sure. You're going to come back out here and you're going to find your boat is 10 miles out to sea. It's gone. Because even if the, even if the seas seem relatively calm, no matter how still the water looks, the current is still going to cause the boat to drift. Now, of course, a captain would never do that because no matter how still the seas are, they're always capable of taking that ship little by little and pulling it away from where you left it. So there's a major concern by the author that his audience has encountered or will encounter theological drift, meaning they will drift away from what they have heard about the sound doctrine of Christ. But why would that be a bad thing for them to drift away from this truth? See, this is where the therefore in verse 1 comes in. Chapter 1 gives you the reason why drifting would be terrible for you. And there's, there's two main ones in chapter 1. First, you would become the subject of Christ's judgment. I should say the object of Christ's judgment. Remember how chapter 1 ends? Verse 13 there. The enemies of Christ are being brought to His feet. They're being put in subjection under Him. And this plain and simple point is this, drifting away from the truth of Christ makes us not the ones that, whose sins are atoned for, but rather the ones at the end who are the object of God's wrath, who are brought into subjection under Christ and who are turned into His footstool. Remember in the previous chapter, the Christ is the Son of God. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He's King. He's eternal God. He is Judge. His throne, it says in verse 8, is forever and ever. He laid the foundation of the earth there in verse 10. The earth will perish, but He will remain forever, it says in verses 11 and 12. And so drifting away from Him makes you the object of His wrath and His scorn, not including in what He is accomplishing. So that's the first reason. You become the object of Christ's judgment. But second, and this would be maybe even a greater tragedy, you would miss Christ's kingdom. Not only would you be the object of His wrath, but you would miss His kingdom. Remember in verse 3 of chapter 1, there's the 17 most important words that you can find in the New Testament. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's a reason that Jesus paid for the sins of his people. It's so that he could bring them to glory. That's the end goal. And so drifting away or theological drift causes us to miss out on that, on glory. So this is what's at stake. 
This is the author's concern that we would drift away from the truth of Christ that he's just told us about. And instead of being in his kingdom, we would be the objects of his judgment. So then, how do we stave off, how do we prevent from happening this theological drift? What's his proposed solution? Look at the first half of the verse. He says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. In other words, he's wanting his readers to focus closely on what he's telling them. For that matter, he wants us to pay closer attention to all that's in God's Word. If you look down just a couple of verses later, which we'll be in maybe in a month or so, in verse 3, he says, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, that is the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, that is through the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts. In other words, all of the words of the apostles, all of their works, all of the things that they accomplished, all of the things which are recorded in Scripture, bear witness to who the Son of God is and the way that you keep from drifting theologically, is to pay very close attention to it. So here's the main point. Close inspection of God's Word tethers the Christian to the anchor of Christ. Close inspection of God's Word tethers the Christian to the anchor of Christ. We are not in short supply of churches and denominations encountering theological drift who failed to drop anchor and are now lost out at sea. But it's not a mystery as to why it happens. Sometimes don't we feel that way? We look up and we're like, how'd this church go from that 50 years ago to that? Now, how'd they get from point A to point B? It's not a mystery as to why it happens. The first thing that disappeared, I promise you, on a case-by-case basis, nearly every single one of them, the first thing that disappeared from our pulpits was a close inspection of God's Word. Instead of opening the Word, reading the words that are on the page, and inspecting the word phrase by phrase, paying careful attention to what each word means, explaining what it means and why it matters, and then applying it to our lives. Instead, preachers began preaching watered-down, psychological, self-help lectures. With several Bible verses sprinkled on the top, to give evidence that what I'm saying is true. Reverse engineering the sermon, as it were. Reverse, reversing the sermon, I should say. So the Bible is being used then, and those sermons, as one person has said, like a drunk uses a lamppost. Not for illumination, but for support. It's not the way the Word was designed to be. But it's not just churches 
and denominations that have drifted. It's Christians too. It's a chicken and the egg situation. They go hand in hand. Which came first? Tough to tell. Because Christians also started to demand less and less of the Bible being taught because they thought it was wooden, they thought it was stodgy, they thought it was difficult to understand, and for Pete's sake, just cut to the chase. And probably most of the people in the pews that were demanding that weren't even saved to begin with. We live in the town of vanity. And we are tempted to visit Vanity Fair every week. I've got TikTok videos, I've got Facebook posts, and they're always changing, and they're always giving me something new, something to pull me in, something to keep me attracted to it. It's got to be new, and it's got to be fresh, and the algorithm is always trained to figure out exactly what you want to keep you there in Vanity Fair. Always. So drifting preachers felt the need to change the preaching algorithm to meet the needs of their audience to keep you here. So the sermon in Vanity Fair became much shorter because, let's face it, we have the attention span now of a gnat. Pastor sermons are 20 minutes. They can't stand on stage. They have to swing from the rafters on wrecking balls. They have to spend millions on stage decoration to match the crazy themes that they're preaching. On Super Bowl Sunday, the stage needs to look like a football field with a big goalpost in the background so that someone can place kick a Bible off the stage. The wrecking ball and the kicking of the Bible both happened in the last two weeks in churches in this country. See, people often think that they're bored in worship because the sermons or the songs or the prayers are bad or they're long. But they're bored in worship because their appetite for the things of God is severely lacking. They are so deeply, we are so deeply attracted to all the things sold in Vanity Fair. That when we come to a place like this, that is simply just talking about how to walk along the path to the celestial city, we find it boring. But understand what's being told here. There's a command here. It's an exhortation. We must... We must pay attention. The church is not Vanity Fair. The command that's being given to you is that you are responsible for your own attention. Do you see that? Every Christian in this room is responsible for his or her obedience to verse 1. In other words, your attention to a subject 
is not someone else's problem. When we sit in front of a TV screen, we're told implicitly, your eyes are my problem. ESPN, the commercials that are played in between whatever program you're watching, they're telling you, I have to keep your eyes on me. I'm fighting for your eyeballs. So we've been told for years upon years, your attention span is someone else's problem. But the church is not Vanity Fair. Your attention is not my problem. Your attention, according to Hebrews 2, verse 1, is your problem. It's what you've got to fight for. It's the struggle in here on Sunday after Sunday as we read God's Word. I want my mind to be focused on this Word. So we don't have to practice then, as a church, disgraceful, underhanded ways of ministry. We can refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word through magic shows and through smoke and through mirrors and all these bait-and-switch efforts to get people in the door so that we can slip the Gospel underneath, maybe without them noticing, but maybe one or two people might notice. Praise God. But it's when they least expect it. Instead, we want to minister by the open statement of the truth. That's Michael's amplified version of 2 Corinthians 4 too. It's exactly what Paul's saying. You understand what's being told to you. God took on human flesh and he lived among us. And he lived perfectly. And instead of taking all the rewards that he rightly deserved, he died on the cross to take God's wrath that he had toward you for your sin. He'd take it on his own shoulders to pay your penalty for sin and then be buried and then rise again from the dead on the third day so that you could have salvation and eternal life. What more could you possibly want? How much more enthralling of a message can there possibly be in all the world than God taking on flesh, dying for us, and rising from the dead? There isn't. And if it requires smoke and mirrors to make that more attractive, you simply don't want the message. But here's the part that's hard about it. You pay attention to the things you're attracted to. You pay attention to the things that you're attracted to. How many kids, you know, struggle to keep their attention in school? They can't think about math. But they can play a video game for eight hours. Straight. Without even eating. You pay attention to the things you're attracted to. Period. So if you want to pay much closer attention 
to this Word, if you want to heed this Word, but you recognize right now, I'm just not that attracted to it. You have to cultivate an appetite for the things of God. It has to grow over time. And you've got to be diligent to try to cultivate that appetite for the things of God. I can promise you that when you wake up in the morning, there are things that you like to do. Perhaps listen to music. I would encourage you. Maybe listen to music that's edifying and pointing you towards Christ. You probably like to listen to a lot of podcasts, some of you. Well, I would encourage you. Maybe put a sermon in there. Maybe put a Bible talk podcast in there that might encourage you toward the things of God. And instead of just listening to it on your way to work in the car, put a Bible in your lap. Not while you're in the car. Before then, at home, put a Bible in your lap and follow along. Grow, cultivate, cultivate your appetite for the things of God. It doesn't happen overnight. But that is the beginning of literally every counseling session I will ever do. Every single person that comes in, whether it's marriage problems or porn problems or whatever the problems are, invariably there is an appetite for the things of God problem that's lying underneath. And before anything can happen in counseling, this has to be cultivated first. Because if we're not working with someone who actually has an appetite for the things of God, there's, no, there's not going to be any desire for repentance. There's not going to be any recognition of sin. There's going to be nothing but theological drift. I'm going to be standing on the shore shouting to a boat that's a hundred miles out to sea because it failed to drop an anchor and tether its boat to the anchor of Christ. So plain and simple, it's not an attention problem at all. It's an appetite problem. What's your appetite for? If your appetite is enthralled by the things presented to you in Vanity Fair, then I'm afraid the things on the king's path that lead to the celestial city are probably going to taste like vegetables to you. They're probably not going to be that appetizing. But if you're a Christian... If the Spirit of God dwells in you, the reason He gave this command is because He thinks, Christian, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, your appetite for the things of God can increase. It can grow. You simply have to feed it. And it will grow. But this is how pastors serve their churches well. It's feeding the congregation the clean food of sound doctrine. Paying attention to every word in the text of Scripture until everyone has a mature appetite. It's vegetables after vegetables after vegetables. This is what I think Paul means in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. It says, And he gave the apostles prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure 
of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's a church. That's what we're to do. Continue to teach sound doctrine so that we as Christians may grow. So that our desire is not to stop in Vanity Fair and see what they have to offer, but so that we may continue to walk the path to the celestial city. That's what he's saying. That's what we want. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing on our church. We ask that you would provide us appetites for your word, that you would grow us in our deep longing and desire for sound doctrine. Lord, we pray for our church. We want Emmanuel Baptist Church not to be a group of Christians that are here for the next 10 years. We want Emmanuel Baptist Church to be here for generations upon generations. And we don't want it to just exist. It's named to be registered somewhere as a business. We want it to be a faithful, sound doctrine preaching church for hundreds of years until Christ returns. We want to be found faithful. So we pray that you would increase our appetites for your word, that we might not drift and be lost at sea. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.